again for joining me on this episode of the freed thinker podcast for a freed bite let's get into it There's a common atheistic and skeptical criticism of the Bible, which says that the Bible and God must be immoral because they command a rape victim to marry their attacker. Is that really what the Bible teaches? Actually, not even close. We're going to explore the passage that they're referring to and see why that is a very poor handling of the text and why reading a passage in context is, surprise, surprise, helpful. The passage that they're referring to comes from Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29. But, as good and responsible interpreters of any passage, of any text, we should always ask ourselves what book a passage is in, where in the book it's found, and what is the immediate context for the passage, as well as other questions. Well, what passage comes right before this one? Let's find out. The broader set of laws in this section of the law code is Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 29, which in full reads... Quote, if there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. By the way, that's an adultery law. Verse 25, quote, but if in the field... <clears throat> the man finds the girl who is engaged, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death, for just as a man who rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he has found uh, her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. That's the rape law, by the way, and that's why the man dies and the woman does not. So... Now we find our law. Verse 28, quote, If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give the girl's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all of his days. End quote. Now, Setting aside the question of the death penalty should be permitted for adultery or for rape, as it pertains to the original question, let's look at the logic of this whole passage. Verse 23 to 24. If a girl claimed to be rape in the city, but she never cried out, no one heard her, anything like that, then it's considered adultery. And it's not to go into this too much since it's besides the point of this episode, but in this time, it was not an individualistic culture. 
uh, it was not a very well constructed uh, ar um, uh, architecture culture. There weren't really doors on the houses in cities, more like curtains. Um, everyone knew what was happening in their neighbor's home in and around if you're inside the city it's not a private kind of society but everyone was in everyone else's business so the paradigm was that if she had cried out or made any type of fuss someone would have heard and come to help you have to remember that they didn't live in modern america where everyone has their own bedroom i mean you're sleeping 10 people to a room so the idea here is that if a woman who commits adultery can't pin it all on the man, she must cry out and struggle against him. Notice here, it's calling women to stand up against men, by the way. It's not saying, hey, just demure yourself and give in. Right? It's not exactly chauvinistic. It's not entirely feministic either, but it can't just be seen as an entirely oppressive law. Now, verse 24 to 27 if this happens in a field and no one is around to hear her, then her innocence is presumed and only the man is punished by being put to death. Again, imagine if this was adultery and not rape. Who's actually given the benefit of the doubt? The woman is. It's her word over his that wins and he's punished. Again, you wouldn't expect to find that in a super machismo, super uh, patriarchal chauvinistic society. The woman is given the benefit of the doubt. Now, we get to the passage that is questioned in the, in the original uh, challenge. Here, the simple question, why we know that this passage is not about rape. Think about what law was just given before it. If the man is guilty of rape, what happens to him? He's put to death. So if verse 28 is trying to say that a rape victim must marry her rapist, who's left to marry? He'd be dead. <laughs> if this passage was about a rapist, the rapist would have been put to death so there wouldn't be a person for her to marry. You see the glaring problem with reading a passage uh, out of context and ignoring the other laws around it? So what is the law talking about? Well, there's actually a parallel passage in Exodus 22, 16 to 17 that says, quote, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. End quote. That's the parallel, and actually that's the original law. Remember, Deuteronomy is a re-giving of the law. It's the covenant renewal. Deuteronomos... Deuteronomy literally means the second law or the second giving of the law. So Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 9 is the re-giving of the law previously given to Israel in Exodus 22, 16 to 17, and is a law prohibiting a man from, as we would say now, hitting and quitting it. Now, when men have a responsibility to care for a woman in this, in this law, they don't get to just use them for sex. So if a man and a woman are not married and are found to have had sex, they are to be married, and the man is to pay the father the dowry for her hand because he has dishonored the father by not seeking his consent first. So this is simply not a passage that says a woman must marry her rapist. Remember, it reads, quote, If a man finds a girl who is unbetrothed virgin, and he lays hold of her and lies with her, and they are found, and they are found... 
Then the man lying down with her shall give the girl's father 50 pieces of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. Or in some passages it says he has disgraced her or something along those lines. And he may not put her away all his days. End quote. That's the literal translation from the Hebrew. Unfortunately, some commentators in Bible translations make the mistake of interpreting these words as referring to the use of force and thus to raping the virgin. Such a view is quite unacceptable for several reasons. Number one, this would lay a burden and penalty on the woman who had no part or consent in the act, which is as unfair and senseless as punishing the victim of rape just one law previously, which the law doesn't do. So for the consistency of the, the, the reading of the law, that just can't be the meaning. Number two, the Hebrew word tapas, which is lay hold of uh, in, in the passage, simply means to take hold of something or to grasp it or by application to, to, to see, capture something. Uh, it's the verb that's used for handling a, f- a harp or a flute in Genesis 4.21 or to handling a sword in Ezekiel 21.11 and 30.21 to using a sickle in Jeremiah 50 to holding out a shield in Jeremiah 46, to using oars to row a boat in Ezekiel 27, uh, to use a bow in Amos 2, and so on. It's likewise used for taking God's name in Proverbs 39, or dealing with the law of God in Jeremiah 2.8. Joseph's garment was grasped in Genesis 39, and we see that type of same usage in 1 Kings 11.30. And even Moses took the two tablets of the law in Deuteronomy 9.17. People are caught in 1 Kings 20, and even cities are captured in Deuteronomy 20.19 and Isaiah 36.1. An adulterous wife may not have been caught in Acts Numbers 5.13. In all of these instances, it's clear that while force may come into the picture from further descriptors in the context, the Hebrew word tapas, to handle, grasp, capture, does not itself indicate anything about the use of violent force. This verb used in Deuteronomy 22:28 is different from the verb used in verse 25, which is chazak, from the root uh, meaning to be strong or firm, which can mean to seize and kill a bear, for example, in 1 Samuel 17, as well as 2 Samuel 2 and Zechariah 14. It can mean to prevail over something in battle or physical context, which is 2 Samuel 24.4 and Daniel 11.7, and to be stronger than someone or something else in Deuteronomy 31.6 and 2 Samuel 2.7, etc. So Deuteronomy 22.25, the law about rape, thus speaks of a man finding woman and forcing her. Just three verses later in the next law in Deuteronomy 25.28, the verb is simply changed to capture or take hold of indicating an action less intense and with no violence than the action dealt with compared to the action dealt with in verse 25 vis-a-vis the rape number three the hebrew word anah which is translated as humble afflict or shame where he says that he has he has shamed her and that's part of why he has to marry her used in deuteronomy 22 29 can sometimes be used for forcing a woman such as genesis 34 Judges 20, verse 5, 2 Samuel 13, and Lamentations 5. But it need not indicate a forcible rape, which is clear from the Deuteronomy passage itself at verse 24, 
It can simply mean to dishonor or mistreat or afflict someone, such as in Exodus 1.11, Genesis 16.6, Exodus 22.22, Deuteronomy 8.2, and Psalms 119.67. And in a sexual setting can denote other kinds of sin than rape, such as in Ezekiel 22.10 and 11. This is why I think this law is referring not to rape, but to seduction. We can agree with the reasoning of James Jordan, who writes, quote, At first sight, this seems to allow for rape of an unbetrothed girl. In Hebrew, however, the verb seize is a weaker verb than the verb for force used in the same passage, verse 25, to describe rape. This stronger verb is also used for the rape of Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. Implied here is a notion of catching a girl, but not a notion that she fought back with anything more than token resistance. Modern random rape would not be excusable under this law and would not have come under the death penalty of Deuteronomy 22:25 to 27. End quote. Accordingly, one will find that many competent authorities in biblical interpretation understand Deuteronomy 22:28-29 the same way that I do, that it applies to cases of seduction, not rape. For instance, Meredith Klein writes, quote, the, the seducer of an unbetrothed virgin was obliged to take her as a wife, paying the customary bride price and forfeiting the right to divorce, end quote. That's from Treaty of the Great King. Matthew Henry quite, uh, writes, quote, if he and the damsel did, did consent, he should be bound to marry her and never to divorce her. How much soever she was below him and how unpleasing soever she might be afterwards to him, end quote. Biblical scholar J.A. Thompson writes, quote, seduction of a young girl, that's the heading for the section, where a girl was not betrothed and no legal obligation had been entered into, the man was forced to pay the normal bride price and marry the girl. He was not allowed subsequently to send her away, end quote. It's from his commentary, Deuteronomy and Introduction and Commentary in the, Den in the Tyndale series. In Israel's Law and Legal Proceedings from 1907, Charles Foster Kent, who's a professor of biblical literature at Yale University, clearly distinguished between the law pertaining to rape in Deuteronomy 22, 25, and 27, and the law pertaining to seduction in Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29. Kyle and Delich classified Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29 under the category of the seduction of the virgin, uh, and comment that the crime involved was their deed. Remember, the text says that if they are found, implying the consent of both parties, and liken this law that is and liken this law to that found in Exodus 22:16 to 17, which comes uh, in the first giving of the law. Now, even if one has some question about the applicability of Deuteronomy 22:28-29, the clear and decisive command from God when a man has seduced a virgin is found again in the parallel. Uh, first instance of law in Exodus 22, which we looked at. Remember, that one says, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall pay her dowry and make her his wife, so on. In this text, there's no question whatsoever that it was not rape. The Hebrew word used to describe the sin is patah, used elsewhere for coaxing, uh, or such as in uh, Judges 14, or for luring, such as in Judges 16 and Hosea 2, or for enticing, such as in Proverbs 1.10 and 16.29. When a man gets a virgin to consent to have sexual relations with him, he is morally obligated to marry her. He can't be a deadbeat dad. Again, other commentators follow this. 
John Calvin, for example, writes, the remedy is that he who has corrupted the girl should be compelled to marry her and also to give her a dowry from his own property, lest if he should afterwards cast her off, she should go away from her bed penniless, end quote. J.C. Connell writes, quote, although she consented, it was still his responsibility to protect her from lifelong shame resulting from the sin of the moment by marrying her, not without payment of the regular dowry, end quote. Adam Clark, in his commentary, writes, quote, This was an exceedingly wise and humane law, and must have operated powerfully against seduction and fornication, because the person who might feel inclined to take advantage of a young woman knew that he must marry her and give her a dowry if her parents consented, end quote. Adam Cole writes in his commentary, quote, If a man seduces a virgin, he must acknowledge her as his wife unless her father refuses, end quote. James Jordan writes, quote, The punishment for the seducer is that he must marry the girl unless her father objects and that he may never divorce her again, end quote. Old Testament scholar Walter C. Kaiser writes, quote, Exodus 22, 16-17 takes up the problem of the seduction of the maiden who was not engaged. Here, the seducer must pay the bride price and agree to marry her, end quote. So at the end of the day, the common atheistic criticism that the Bible says a rape victim should marry her attacker is, like so much of the criticism in the Bible, based on shallow, superficial, atomistic, and completely biased, uneducated distortions of the text within its original context. What we have here is actually the institution of a law which protected women from a, the damaged reputa uh, reta reputation, which back then was almost worth, worse than death. We may protest to the cultural norms of that day, but a woman who was not a virgin would be hard-pressed to get married and have children. This means that she would not have the normal provisions for care in her old age and would have to attempt to attach herself to the homes of extended family. There's so much cultural background here that I could go into, but the point here is that this law was actually a protection for women against the seduction of roaming deadbeat dads, not a command that she was to marry her rapist. Again, that view is simply a gross mishandling of the text. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freethinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Email me, freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com, or swing on by the Freethinker group page on Facebook. As always, you can sponsor us uh, by clicking the Become a Sponsor link on the blog or by following us on Patreon. Join us again next time as we discuss more topics related to the Bible, theology, philosophy, and a consistent Christian worldview. Good night, and God bless.